All right, well, happy Easter again, and welcome to this live stream service. Um, and I want us to, you know, like this Easter this, that we're having right now is definitely going to be an Easter that we all remember uh, because of the shelter in place and the fact that we can't be together this morning. But here's the good news. Though this room is virtually empty, the tomb really is empty. And so that's what we are here to celebrate this morning. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab it and open it up to John chapter 20, where uh, Catfish was just reading from, John chapter 20. Um, and we'll be making our way through John chapter 20 and 21 here in a little bit. But while you're getting there, uh, when I was a kid, my cousins, Mac and Nate and I, whenever we got together, something was going to go down, like big time, something crazy was going to happen. And this, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. Like this is just a given. When we got together, something crazy was going to go down. It wasn't a question of if, it was just how crazy. And the older we got, the more dangerous these things always became. But even when we were younger, like 12, 14, I remember one day we decided we were just going to try to kill all these fire out fire ant mounds that were around by, you know, just mixing whatever things we could find around the house. And so we started pouring all kinds of different things on it, just seeing what would happen from ketchup to vinegar to baking soda, oil, kerosene, diesel, gasoline, chlorine. And in the process of doing all of this, we came across two ingredients that I will not name here because I love you and I love your kids. Two ingredients that if you mix them together, they produced crazy amounts of noxious gas. And so being the geniuses we were, we were like, well, what would happen if we put it in a bottle? Would it explode? And so that's what we did. We got these two ingredients. We put them into a bottle and we gave it to my cousin Mac because he's the craziest of all of us. And he shakes it up a little bit, and then he's just holding it, and he's like, nothing's happening. And so we all are peering in at it, trying to figure out what's going on, and all of a sudden, it gets really hot, and it gets really tight, and he just flings it, and as soon as it's out of his hands, the bottom explodes, sounds like a shotgun, shoots 50 feet straight up in the air, comes down, we're all looking stunned, and then we're like, oh, we got to do that again. But in the process of doing all these things, all, all we were really doing was confirming the law of cause and effect. Uh, cause and effect, that if you mix these two ingredients, gas is produced. And that if you put that gas in a bottle, the pressure is going to build to the point that it explodes. And so cause and effect. But sometimes there are you know, a singular cause doesn't produce just a singular effect. Sometimes a singular cause produces a multitude of effects. And this is nowhere more evident than in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His resurrection, one cause, has produced innumerable effects. His resurrection literally changes everything. It has affected everything. I mean, just look at, at the world. Our world today, historically, has been affected by this one thing. And while these effects are truly innumerable, when we come to John chapter 20 and 21, we can find four very practical effects of the resurrection. 
And the neat thing about each one of these is that each one of them involves a personal interaction of the risen Christ with one of his friends. That he comes to them, each each one of them struggling in, in a different way. And he comes to them, meets them where they're at, which shows us the heart of Jesus. But then also through it, it teaches us some very practical effects of the resurrection that I want to share with you this morning, that I pray would be an encouragement to you as we celebrate Jesus and what he's done. And so the first one in John chapter 20 is from Mary Magdalene. She was, a, uh, she, she, she was someone who Jesus had healed of demon possession. And she became, after that, arguably his most devoted follower. And so look with me basically where we concluded reading just a moment ago. We'll pick it up in verse 11, John chapter 20. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. And so we find Mary here weeping. And she's weeping for for two reasons. One, Jesus is dead. I mean, she's followed him. She's believed in him. She had put all of her trust in him. And she was at the cross. She was one of the women weeping at the foot of the cross. She saw this happen. She saw his brutal murder. She saw his, his body broken and his blood poured out. And now she's internally, emotionally broken at what has happened. And so she's weeping for that, but then also she's weeping because on top of his death, now she's afraid that someone has come and taken his body to desecrate it, to defame it. And so she's weeping again and more. And then Jesus comes and finds her and calls out to her, Mary, There's only one person who said her name like that. And she knew who it was. And he met her in her sorrow. And he turned her sorrow into joy. Because he was alive. Death couldn't hold him. It could not defeat the Son of God. He had defeated death. And so friends, that's the first effect that I want us to note this morning from the book of John. As we talk about these four effects that because of the resurrection, this is number one if you have the sermon guide printed out, because of the resurrection, death is temporary. 
Because of the resurrection, death is temporary as well as all the sorrow that goes with it. It's temporary. See, death is not actually natural. Okay, we were not like created to die. We were created to live. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not how God created the world. Human death was not in the very good beginning. And so death may be inevitable for us today, but it's not part of the natural order. It is rather a chaotic and destructive force that entered into the world as a consequence of the first human's sin. And since that time, death has been an ever-present, crouching enemy waiting at the gates. And so I lost the only grandfather I ever had the chance to know in 1992. And I lost his wife, one of my grandmothers, four years later in 1996. But in 2009, I lost my grandmother that I called Mama Ruth. She was the one who lived across the street from us on the farm that I grew up on. And she was the one that I spent portions of every single day of my life, really, for the first 18 years. I would go over to her house before school, and she would send me off to school. I would come home to her house after school. She would give me a snack. We spent tons of time together going and visiting her brothers and sisters, just always doing tons of stuff together. And I'll tell you, in the summertime, she would work me like a dog. And so when she passed in 2009, it hurt, and it stung, and it still does. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, and maybe even more so, because you've lost a mom, you've lost a dad, or maybe you've even lost a child. And I remember vividly at her funeral in the church I grew up in, Mouthing the words, I hate death. And friends, Jesus hates it more. And he came to do something about it. He came to kill it. And just as there was not death in the very good beginning, listen, there won't be death when at the end of the age either. Death now has an expiration date. Death now will one day experience its own death because of the resurrection, because Jesus has defeated it. See, when Jesus walked out of the grave, he grabbed death by the throat and threw it in his grave. And so it is on the clock. It will end. Its time is limited. And so one day we will be able to say, 1 Corinthians 15, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because it's gone. It's been stolen away by the risen King. And when He returns, Revelation 21, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And Jesus declares, Behold, I am making all things new. This is because of the resurrection. 
Because of the resurrection, death is temporary. That's the first effect that we see. The second effect we see in John chapter 20 comes from Jesus' interaction with Thomas. Doubting Thomas. And so look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then his disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. For time, just skip down to verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. But believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so, like Mary, Thomas is in the midst of struggle, but his struggle is with doubt. And then the resurrected Jesus in kindness comes to Thomas. And he doesn't scold him. He comes to Thomas and he says, Thomas, do not disbelieve. Believe. And Thomas, in seeing the resurrected Lord, has his doubt answered. And that's the second effect I want you to write down in your notes. Because of the resurrection... Doubt is answered. Because of the resurrection, doubt is answered. And notice, I did not say it's taken away. Until Jesus returns, doubt will be part of our faith journey as fallen individuals. But here's the deal. Doubt can be answered. And so I tell people all the time when I'm having a discussion about them and they're telling me doubts that they have and things that, that, that they're wondering about or whatever, I tell them, first of all, hey, join the club. It's all right. Doubting is part of it. The disciples doubted. Matthew 28. That's part of it. That's okay. But then I tell them, secondly, chase your doubt down. Like, do work. Go after it. And by that, I do not mean just read an article on Wikipedia and watch one episode of the Discovery Channel. Second graders do more research for a school project than that. And we are dealing with your soul, not a second grade research report. And so do work, chase that doubt down. I mean, for one, like actually read the Bible. See what it says for itself. If you've never read it, 
Don't be like, I can't believe that. Have you read it? Read the Bible. See what it says for itself. And then secondly, yes, read widely. Do research. Do all these things. And make sure you recognize like what is an open-handed issue that Christians can disagree on and what is a closed-handed issue that is like fundamental to the, to the Bible, fundamental to the Christian faith. Make sure you understand those and don't confuse them. And if you will, I guarantee you, the Bible will hold up. Your doubt will be answered. But if you want to cut to the chase, that's, that's what the resurrection does for us. The resurrection is where doubt is ultimately answered. Because stating the obvious, Christianity, okay, all of it, the truthfulness of the Bible, uh, our hope at forgiveness and being made right with God, all stands on the historicity of the resurrection, on the veracity of the resurrection. Like, did it happen? Because if Jesus did not rise again, then it's all a lie. If Jesus did not rise again, then Nietzsche and Freud and Marx are all right in their critiques of Christianity. The Bible admits this. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus did not rise again, all Christians are fools wasting our lives and are to be pitied above all men for hoping in a lie. But if Jesus did rise again. Like if he rose again, like after Jesus said that he was God incarnate, after he said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, all those singular, and that no one comes to the Father except through him, after Jesus claimed four times, I'm going to die for sins and then I'm going to rise again, After Jesus said that he had authority not only to lay his life down, but to take it back up again of his own volition. After he showed himself to be a friend of sinners. After he went to the cross and died a substitutionary death in our place for our sins as a substitute payment for the debt we owed. Okay, after he did all of that, if he did rise again, then it's all true. Tim Keller, a Presbyterian pastor in New York, sums it up very, very succinctly. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching. But whether or not he rose from the dead. And so if you doubt the historicity of the resurrection. I challenge you. Study it. Like do work. Like I was talking about. Chase that doubt down. And if you will be fair. And if you will hold your own presuppositions to the same level of heat that you place the presuppositions of Christianity, and if you will hold your own beliefs to the same burden of proof that you are holding the resurrection of Jesus, I guarantee you, you will come out on the other side with your doubts answered. You can just go ask Lee Strobel or Josh McDowell. 
These are two journalists independently. They didn't know each other. Independently, who at different points in time both saw, hey, I am going to discredit Christianity and I'm going to discredit it by disproving the resurrection. And so as they went to work to discredit it and were combing through piles of evidence, they both finally came to the point where they're like, oh, snap. It's true. It happened. And therefore, Jesus is who he said he is. And they believed. And so because of the resurrection, doubt has an answer. That's effect number two. Effect number three comes from Peter. And so look at chapter 21. We have to read a little bit for this. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And so they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, he's not calling himself out because he's writing this. Therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. All right? Jesus' resurrection was a physical resurrection. It wasn't some like, spirit-like thing, not ethereal. He's physical, heart-pumping, eating fish, having breakfast. He was hungry. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And so he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And so if we could climb into Peter's head during the midst of all this, Peter is overwhelmed with guilt and regret 
and shame because in Jesus, just a few days prior, in Jesus' greatest moment of despair, Peter denied him. Okay, he abandoned, he had promised, if all of these other disciples, you know, abandon you, I will never do that. Jesus says, before the rooster crows three times, you will abandon me. Three times. And he does. In Jesus' greatest moment of despair, Peter abandoned and denied him. But Jesus never abandons those who are his own. But comes out to us and seeks us even in the midst of our denials and betrayals. Because yes, Jesus, you know, um, Peter here, like he goes all Forrest Gump with Lieutenant Dan and jumps out of the boat to swim to Jesus. But first, it was Jesus who came to the shore. It was Jesus who came seeking out Peter. It was Jesus who makes the first move. He didn't wait on Peter to do something. He comes to Peter, seeking Peter in the midst of his guilt, in the midst of his regret, in the midst of Peter's shame. And he does so to remind Peter that because of the resurrection, shame is removed. Your shame is removed, Peter, because of the resurrection. So that's number three if you're taking notes. Write it down. Because of the resurrection, shame, this regret, this shame that Peter lived with, is removed. Completely. Like on the cross, Jesus paid for it, and the resurrection proves that the payment is finished. And so to help you visualize this, remember like crucifixions in the Roman first century. When someone was crucified, what they would do is they would hang over their head on a little placard like what it was they were being crucified. They would put a list of their debt. They would put a list of their um, sins. They would put a list of their crimes. They would put all of that over their heads. A record of debt. A record of charges. Now for Jesus, there was nothing he was actually convicted of. And so they wrote, King of the Jews. But you and I, we do have a record of debt hanging over our heads. Things that we are guilty of. Crimes against God that we are guilty of. Sins that we have committed. We all have this record of debt. Every single one of us. I mean, I bet bet a few of the charges against you may even be popping up in your head right now. Your lusts, your jealousies, your hatreds, your grudges, your bitterness, your lies, your deceit, your secret sins, your rebellion, your bitterness at God, your anger at God. Friends, this is the whole point of the cross. This is the whole point of the cross. Because when Jesus went to the cross, it's as if that record of debt that hangs over our heads was transferred and it was put over Christ and He suffered in our place in order to satisfy the indictments which were against us. 
And in so doing, he canceled the debt. It's been expunged. It's been paid in full. It's gone. Jesus paid it all. And so here's the deal. And this is such a warm blanket for those of us who are believers and maybe struggle with guilt and shame and regret or continue to fall and just torment ourselves with guilt every single time we fall. Listen, if the highest court of the universe, God, has declared you not guilty based upon the actions of Christ, then who are you to disagree with Him? Are you mightier than God? Are you stronger than God? Are you smarter than God? Then you, do you know better than God? And so if God has declared you not guilty based upon the actions of my son, friend, you should do the same thing for yourself and with others. Because God has forgiven them too if they are in Christ. And so for my brother or sister who can't imagine that God would love you because of where you've been, what you've done, or what you're doing, I pray you would let go of that nonsense and you would accept the grace and mercy that Christ offers to you freely. God's level of love for you is not dependent upon your level of love for Him. Peter denied Jesus. Low level of love. Jesus came after Peter. High level of love. And He came after him to remind him that because of the resurrection, shame has been removed. Shame has been removed. And so putting all of these things together, these three things from Mary and Thomas and Peter, what this is communicating to us is Jesus' repeated declaration throughout these chapters. Chapter 20, verse 19, He says, Peace be with you. Verse 21, He says, Peace be with you. Verse 26, He says, Peace be with you. Be with you. And so friend, because of the resurrection and all that it means, if you are in Christ, number four in your notes, because of the resurrection, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Christ has paid your debt. He's purchased your forgiveness. He's removed Your shame. He's put death on the clock. He loves you and he is with you. The grand overarching story of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, and the coming restoration. Like it's happening. Christ will return and make right all that's gone wrong in the world. And all of this is because of the resurrection. It's because of the resurrection that there's hope globally for a ruined humanity. And it's because of the resurrection that there's hope personally for your ruined life. See friends, Jesus can resurrect a broken life. Jesus can resurrect just very practically a dead marriage. 
Jesus can resurrect a broken heart and a broken spirit. He can resurrect lost jobs, unexpected events, circumstances you would not have chosen. He can resurrect the hope you've lost. He can resurrect the joy that's left you. And my friends who are watching this and do not yet know Jesus, listen to me. He can resurrect you spiritually. Because that's what salvation is. It's going from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's going from impending doom because of your sin to guaranteed acceptance and love because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And all you have to do to lay hold of that is to accept it. To trust Jesus alone to be what makes you right before the Father. Not your actions, not what you've done, not your works, but what Jesus has done. His actions, His works in your place as your substitute. He takes your sin, He gives you His righteousness. And all you have to do is grab hold of that. Repent and believe. That's it. That's it. And so for those of you who do that in these moments right now, and for those of you who have done that, because of the resurrection, peace be with you. Sleep well. Breathe deep. Live joyously. Christ is alive. He is risen. Last night before Sarah went to bed, she wrote on a whiteboard, He is risen, so that when the girls came downstairs to see their Easter baskets or whatever, the first thing they would be greeted with is this declaration He is risen. And before the, my three older girls made their way downstairs, um, our youngest, Eden, is an early riser. And she got up early and she was playing and she came out of her room and she went to the whiteboard. And right next to where it says he is risen, just of her own little volition, she took the pen and she wrote, Friends at last. Out of the mouths of babes. Because of the resurrection. Yeah. At last we have been made friends with God. Happy Easter. Believe the good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have made us your friends. Through Christ. Because of his life and his death and because of the resurrection. And so, Father, I pray that for those of us who know you as Lord, as Savior, that you would flood our hearts in these moments and days and all throughout the day. Rainy as it is, flood our hearts with the joy that we now have peace with you. That you love us, you accept us, you are for us. You are with us. We have home, a home in heaven. We have been forgiven. Our shame is gone. Death 
will be over. And we bless you, God. Thank you. And then, Father, I pray for those who are watching right now who have not yet trusted you by faith, have not yet received the free gift of salvation that you offer to any who will believe. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would ignite that flame in their hearts and they would repent and believe. And walk into joy. And walk into peace. And walk into their shame and their guilt and their sin being removed and gone. Because of the resurrection. Bless you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Holy Spirit. Amen. If you have never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and at this moment, you are thinking through this, or maybe you want to do that, you want to to trust Him, all you have to do is receive Him, trust Him by faith, repent and believe, admit that you are a sinner, believe that Jesus has died for your sins, and receive Him, accept Him into your life as your Lord and Savior. Not one or the other. It takes both. And all you have to do is is just do that. It's an attitude of the heart. But if you'd like to talk about that, if you have questions about that, if you'd like to dialogue about that, or if you just did that, I would love for you to let me know. And so if you want to talk or let me know, you can find my email address, any of our elders' email addresses on our website. You can comment right now on the live stream where some of our elders are there to to talk, answer questions. You can do any of that. And so let me encourage you to that. But for all of us, I just want to wish you very, very happy Easter. Live in joy. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And so may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and always. And it will, because He is risen. Happy Easter.